Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. We said that resurrection is not just a neat trick that God pulls off uh, to show off his power, uh, but rather that resurrection is the first sign of new creation that Sunday is all about. Uh, And in fact, that's what Christianity is about. We are to be a new creation people in the midst of an old, kind of decaying, broken creation. Uh, But we also reminded ourselves that our story, even though Easter comes right after Lent, this season of reflection and wearing ashes, uh, we took time to remind ourselves that our story does not begin with sin and ashes. Our story begins with blessing and beauty. That as real as sin is, and it is real... Our identity is not found in our sin, but rather our identity is found in being a child of God created in his image. And this week I came across something uh, in preparation for next Sunday's sermon that I wish I would have seen a couple of weeks earlier because I would have included it in last week's message. Uh, But but since we're here every week, I get an opportunity to kind of catch you up. So uh, this is what I would have said as part of the Easter message. It's a quote. Uh, Author Rob Bell says this, in the Bible... Uh, Sin is the middle word about you. The first word is that you are created in the image of God, crowned with glory and honor, and a child of the divine. That's who you are. The second word is the honest, unvarnished truth about how we all fall short. We all sin. We all disrupt the shalom that God intends for all things. And then the third word is the continual insistence that the last word hasn't yet been spoken about you or your sin, that all sins have have been forgiven in Christ, that we are loved and restored, redeemed, reconciled, and renewed. I think that's a pretty good word. Um, So today, what I want to do is I want to turn our attention to the cross and begin to explore all that had happened on Good Friday and what what was accomplished when Jesus died for our sins. And to help us do that, I want to turn to Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. Just a couple of verses today, uh, but powerful verses that I think have a lot to say to us. Colossians chapter 2, you can click there, you can turn there, you can follow along on the screens. Uh, it'll be there. It says this, uh, Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. Many translations will just interpret that. He was forgiven our debts, the word debts. He took it away and he nailed it to the cross. In verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's say a word of prayer and ask God's blessing on our time together. Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, we want to approach the biblical text as we do each week, and that is with humility and asking that you would speak to us, uh, that you would inform our hearts and our minds, that we might be shaped more into your likeness. And so God, today as we turn our attention uh, during Eastertide to all the events on Good Friday, uh, we just pray, Lord, that your spirit would be active in this place, 
Um, Lord, would you encourage us? Would you lift us up? Uh, If necessary, uh, even though it's sometimes difficult, would you convict us? Would you give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear um, the good news of the beautiful gospel? Lord, we love you. Be with us in these moments today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I love this passage of Scripture because this passage of Scripture declares two amazing truths. The first one, Christ has canceled our indebtedness to God. That's when you all say amen. (laughs) The second amazing truth of of this is that on the cross, the powers and authorities have been disarmed, which is a little bit, a little less clear, right? We're kind of like... We're not sure about that one. In fact, I would say that these truths are rather easy to proclaim, but do we know what they actually mean? And so what I want to do today is I want to address two questions that will help inform and help us understand what happened on Good Friday. The first question, and each question is two parts, uh, but the first question is this, what does it mean to be in debt to God, and how are those debts canceled? The second question is, uh, what are the powers and authorities, and how are they disarmed? (laughs) So we have these two questions before us. And to help us address the first question, what does it mean to be in debt to God, and how is that debt then canceled? Uh, I want to first help us to begin to understand the nature of evil. So let's uh, start in a good spot, shall we? (laughs) The nature of evil. Now, broadly speaking, uh, evil, and I would say biblically speaking, Evil has two primary forms. The first is direct evil or direct injustice. Uh, This is the evil that we are familiar with and the things that we talk about. This is when someone steals from another, abuses another, lies, betrays, etc., etc. There are a thousand examples of this kind of direct evil in our world. And in fact, this direct kind of evil has a direct effect. Uh, on because of this injustice. For example, uh, I now lack the resource that was stolen, or I bear the scars of the abuse, or the truth is now muddied by the lie. So there's this direct offense, and then there's this direct consequence. But the second kind of nature of evil is that this, these kind of direct actions of, of sin and injustice um, also have this residual effect that the evil does harm to our relationship. In fact, uh, it does vandalism to the environment or the culture around us. Are you with me? So there's this direct commitment of evil, this direct act of evil. It has a very direct consequence, but it also has kind of all this residual effect. It does damage to the relationship. It does vandalism to the culture or the environment around us. So now, where there once was trust... There is now suspicion, and where there once was uh, security, there is now fear. And as I've already mentioned, this is the second form of evil, this kind of culture, environment of suspicion and fear. Uh, Now, let me, uh, at this point in the message, like very early on, let me give a listener warning. (laughs) Uh, What I'm about to say may not be easy to hear, but I invite you to consider it with a discerning heart. What happens is when the environment or the culture is filled with fear and suspicion, what we tend to do is we 
we create systems and structures that are based on those fears and those suspicions. So imagine that a system or a structure is created in order to protect and benefit one group while oppressing or cheating another group. That is the group that is feared or found suspicious. Uh, that group then, the group that has benefited from the system is given over to greed because uh, of their benefit and their own wealth, and they believe they have everything figured out. And while living moral lives on the surface, they are often blinded to their own greed and uh, the system that they benefit from and how it hurts others. Now, the oppressed group, often out of, of sheer desperation, uh, can be brought to steal or lie or cheat, just trying to get around this immovable system uh, that the benefit, to, to try to, that, that oppresses them. So they are brought out of desperation to these acts in, in an effort to get around this immovable system that oppresses them. But what this does is inevitably leads the benefited group to see the cheated group as criminals and then further oppress them. <laughs> now, this building up of systems and structures based on fear and suspicion is, as, is actually as old as human history. In other words, as humanity, we've been doing this all along. And so what the biblical narrative bears witness to over and over is this truth, that we have all contributed to evil. And, and whether that is by direct evil, direct acts of injustice, or whether that is by participating in sinful systems, the, the biblical witness is clear, we all fall short. That we all have, have disrupted the, the peace, the shalom that God intends for all of creation. And in fact, there is a word for this. It's a very biblical word, and I think we ought to keep it. The word is sin, <laughs> Right? And I would actually say that our, this is our indebtedness to God. This, this idea of this direct kind of evil with these direct consequences and then the residual effect of systems and structures that are kind of built up based on this, this environment of fear and suspicion. I would say this encapsulates in all in one word sin. This is our indebtedness to God. This is what we need saving from. All the ways in which we have failed to contribute to human flourishing and have instead contributed to evil. And so it is our sin that has indebted us to God. Now here's one common belief. One common belief is that God should just swoop in and get rid of all the evil people. Right? Let's just have God come in, and whether it's now or whether it's in the end, we'd love for that. Just God come in and swoop, swoop in and just rid the world of all the evil people. However, when we say God needs to rid the world of all the evil people, we are placing evil firmly and always in the other and failing to recognize the ways in which we have contributed to environments of fear. We fail to see our own sin while pointing out the sin in others. And so here's the good news of the beautiful gospel is that God addresses sin and evil and cancels our indebtedness to God, but does it in a way that affirms and preserves the beauty of humanity despite our sin. Yes, this is the good news of the beautiful gospel, that God actually does, in fact, deal with evil, but he does it in a way that preserves the beauty and affirms the, human the beauty of humanity 
right? This is amazingly good news. Now, so, now in order to get, like, in order to get there in terms of like how does this all work and how does this all function, uh, we need to understand a central image in the Old Testament. We've got to go back to the Old Testament and understand this central image because understanding that the biblical story is a story that leads to Jesus, then Old Testament is necessary. We need to keep it around because it helps us understand Jesus. And the central image that I'm talking about is animal sacrifice. Now, let's make two initial and very important observations about animal sacrifice right off the bat. Observation number one, weird. <laughs> Observation number two, ew. <laughs> right? I mean, like, this seems like totally foreign to us. So bizarre and so weird. But here's the, here's the purpose of animal sacrifice in the Old Testament. In speaking in broad strokes, in broad strokes, the practice of animal sacrifice was used to symbolically cover Israel's sin and then purify them so that for worship in the temple. So broad strokes, animal sacrifice, what is it doing? It is seeking to cover the sins and then purify them so they, are, so, so they can worship in the temple. In fact, one of the, one of the practices during an animal sacrifice, and if you kind of read the Old Testament, you see there's all kinds of different sacrifices and they all kind of have each of their own nuance, but, but one of those practices is where the worshiper would place their hands on the animal that is about to be sacrificed in order to symbolize that the animal is taking on or absorbing the sin of the worshiper. The animal was then sacrificed in order to indicate that the worshiper has been forgiven. And so there's a transfer of sin. That somehow through touching the animal, the sin goes, my sin, the things that I'm guilty for, all the ways in which I have not contributed to God's shalom are then brought upon the animal. Now, what New Testament authors do is they pick up on this image and they apply it to Christ. They apply it to Christ because Christ is our sacrificial lamb. You hear that over and over again in the New Testament. And then they're picking up on this central image in, of, of the Old Testament of animal sacrifice and what is happening and how that, that sacrificial animal is taking on or absorbing the sin of the worshiper. And New Testament authors are picking up on this idea and say, begin to make this daring proclamation that Christ is the final sacrifice. He is the sacrificial lamb. He is the one who is perfect and without defect, that is, without sin. But he is also the one who willingly takes on our sin. He becomes victim to our violence. He becomes subject to our abuse. He took the anger of our greed. He became victim of our systems of oppression. He becomes subject to our betrayal. And so our collective sin is then directed to him. He takes it on and it kills him. But in so doing... He has canceled our indebtedness to God. Amen? Now, as part of our Faith in Film series, this is the commercial portion of the sermon. As part of our Faith in Film series, uh, a couple of us went and saw the 1959 version of Ben-Hur. Uh, without any sarcasm, Anyone that wants to take Jesus seriously 
and understand him in his context and in his world needs to see the 1959 version of Ben-Hur. It is an absolutely phenomenal film. But the story is, it's a timeless story about two estranged brothers living in Jerusalem at the height of the Roman Empire in AD 30. And the life of Christ is actually woven into and throughout the story of these two brothers. In fact, the, 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 the full film title is Ben-Hur, uh, A Story of the Life of Christ, or something like that. Um, Rick Edwards is our Ben-Hur like super fan, uh, and so he's like, that's not exactly right. Um, but but you, get this, you get the idea. <laughs> okay, so here, so there's this beautiful scene toward the end of the film, uh, which public service announcement, it's like four hours long. So carve out some time to go see this movie. Um, so there's this beautiful scene toward the end of the film where Jesus is on the cross and Ben-Hur, who has been on this spiritual journey uh, through the whole film as he wrestles with feelings of betrayal, of revenge, of unforgiveness, he's kind of dealing with all of these things and it all comes to a head in a scene where Ben-Hur looks on as Christ is crucified. And I want us to watch that scene. Let's watch it now. Search has brought you, Baltazar. He gave me water and a heart to live. What has he done to merit this? He has taken the world of our sins onto himself. To this end, he said he was born. Stable where I first saw him. For this cause he came into the world. For this death and this beginning. Did you catch it? 
What has he done to merit this? Balthazar, who in a brilliant narrative turn, is one of the magi who was there at the stable and has been tracing the life of Christ all the way now to the cross. Balthazar replies, he's taken the world of our sins onto himself. I can't think of any better way to sum up how our indebtedness to God, this direct kind of evil, this, this environment of fear and suspicion, and how, death, and how Christ's death deals with all of that, other than to say he has taken the world of our sin onto himself. You see, there's no, in this, in this dialogue, in this picture, and how this is portrayed, both in the scriptures and then so beautifully in the film, Ben-Hur, there is, there is no angry God, there is no punishment being doled out, there's no wrath being satisfied, it is rather a loving God revealed in Christ who takes on the sin of the world of onto himself and then dies in order that we might be free and all the debt that stands against us might be forgiven and released. But there is more to the story. There's one more question to be asked. And that question is, what are the powers and authorities and how are they disarmed? Well, as I've already mentioned, the second form of evil is this environment of fear and suspicion. That when, and what happens is when evil is done, uh, it changes the environment, it changes the relationship. But now that environment of fear and distrust leads to more direct acts of evil. Are you with me? That when there's a direct act of evil and now the environment has changed, the environment itself, the system itself, the structure itself promotes more acts of direct evil and violence and injustice. And so what happens is it creates a cycle of sin and evil. Greed leads to more greed. The victimized become abusers. Lies lead to betrayal. Fear leads to violence. Violence to more violence. And round and round we go around the cycle of sin and evil. And behind all of this, there is a there is something that is animating that 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 cycle. There is there is something there is a force that is deeply invested in keeping us in that cycle. And the term uh, that that Paul, the apostle Paul in particular uses for that over and over is powers and authorities or principalities and powers. Now, here's the deal. We learned this uh, about a year and a half ago in our forgiveness series. I'll mention it again. But in order for this cycle of evil to continue, evil must be retaliated against and fought on its own terms, right? So for evil to succeed, it needs a second evil to continue the cycle. And we talked about how the power of forgiveness ends the cycle. Well, here today, I want to focus in on what God has done in Christ on the cross to end the cycle. Because on the cross, Jesus literally takes on to himself, absorbs our sin, thereby canceling our debt. But instead of perpetuating the cycle of evil that is animated or powered by the powers and authorities or the principalities and powers, he responds again with forgiveness, thereby ending the cycle and disarming the powers that animate it. Are you with me? Which is to say 
the only thing in the world capable of overcoming evil is love and forgiveness. And I would hope that the church, more than anybody else, would give a resounding amen. The only power capable of disarming the powers and authorities is the power of love and forgiveness. Amen. I'll give my own amens today. <laughs> N.T. Wright says this, victory over the powers is accomplished through the forgiveness of sins. And so what was true of animal sacrifice was true of Jesus' death, but churned up to 11. <laughs> In other words, he doesn't, he doesn't just take on or absorb our sin. He mirrors our sin back to us and shames it for the ugliness that it is, right? That when we look on the cross, we should simultaneously some, see something absolutely ugly and absolutely beautiful. The ugliness is we have... We have created systems capable of killing the Son of God and a, and a man who was totally innocent, right? And that should, that should reflect back to us as being utterly ugly and evil. And yet at the very same time, it is absolutely beautiful because it is through the forgiveness of Christ on the cross that the world is absolutely changed and refounded. You with me? Everything changes at the cross and then is verified through the resurrection. You can't, you can't divorce the two, uh, and I'm not trying to do that. What is accomplished on the cross is verified uh, and validated through the resurrection. And so Jesus doesn't just take on or absorb our sin. He mirrors our sin back to us and shames that sin for the ugliness that it is. And then Jesus gains victory over evil by refusing to to give it the fuel that it needs, and he responds with forgiveness. This is the beautiful gospel. Um, and, and I would say that this is how Jesus saves us, that when the powers and authorities are disarmed, that then we are free in new ways, that there is a both and. It isn't just one or the other. It isn't just a, a personal renewal. It is 100% that. But it is also this disarming of the animating forces of evil, right? Uh, and, and so there's, there's this collective work that Christ is dealing with. And so it's a both and. It's a corporate and a personal. And so when this is how Jesus saves us. With the, when the powers and authorities are disarmed, we personally, me, you are then free to live in new ways. That when we place our trust in Jesus Christ, it isn't just that our sins are covered, it is that the power of evil in principle is broken in our lives. Yeah, that's right, amen. <laughs> you guys are catching on, you know? Uh, so in other words, here's, here's the thing. Again, it's like, well, that's really easy to say. Christian discipleship or to use the fancy words, holiness, sanctification, all of those, Christian discipleship is learning to live into what is most true about us, which is when we are in Christ, the principalities and powers have been broken in our lives, and we are free to live and to love in ways we never dreamed possible. But then it kind of takes some working out, like a lifetime of working out of how to do that. It's a beautiful thing. Let's go back to Ben-Hur. 
I, I, like, I like watched this film, and I, I turned to Rick, our discipleship director, and I said, Rick, I think Emmaus is going to be hearing a lot about Ben-Hur in the future. <laughs> so just prepare yourselves. Uh, here it comes. Back to Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur had been consumed with hate and vengeance because of the betrayal of his brother. But in, in one of the scenes after the one I just showed, um, something is different. And, and not just something is different in the world, but something is different in Ben-Hur. That something fundamentally changed in him. Because throughout the film, after the betrayal, he is a man 100% focused on vengeance against his brother. And his heart is filled with hate and unforgiveness. And he desires nothing more than to carry that out. But his love interest in the story, Esther, has kind of been following the life and the ministry of Jesus all along. And throughout the film, you get this kind of peppering of her trying to point Ben-Hur to Christ, to which his heart is never ready until the scene we just saw. And then it comes to this scene where the principalities and powers, he is, with, with those disarmed, he is now ready to break the cycle of evil in his own life. Let's watch. felt his voice take the sword out of my hand. Again, did you catch it? They don't write dialogue like this anymore. <laughs> did you catch it? says, I heard him say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I felt his voice take the sword out of my hand. Which after four hours <laughs> of watching this character be filled with vengeance and hate, almost brings you to tears because you recognize something has fundamentally changed in his life. The powers and authorities have been disarmed in Ben-Hur's life after his encounter with Christ. May the same be true of us. Now for Ben-Hur, it was a vengeful heart that needed to be freed to forgive and move away from violence. For you, it may be something else. There's a whole multitude of ways in which the powers and authorities would have their way in our lives to keep us in the cycle of evil and sin and injustice. And so for us, it may not be that. It may be we need to be freed from addiction, 
freed from consumerism, freed from any number of things. But my encouragement is that whatever it is, the good news of the beautiful gospel church is that there is freedom in Christ who has disarmed the powers and authorities and has ended the cycle of evil in principle in the world. Amen? And it is our role and it is our responsibility and it is our privilege as the people of God to lean into that truth more and more and more and more and to begin seeing it play out in more and more ways. And we always won't have the initial awareness of things. I hope that we will see things more clearly five years from now, 10 years from now than we do now. But, be, but continually lean into this truth of the reality of all that has been accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross and validated through the resurrection which began the new creation. Amen? Well, thank you for receiving his word today. Let me say a word of prayer and I want to um, lead us in a time uh, of communion at the Lord's table. Heavenly Father, thank you for these truths. We recognize today that while we are made in your image, we bear the scars of sin. And, you know, we might want to soften that word, we might want to take it away, but it's the only word that has the proper weight of the ways in which we have disrupted your plan your will, your shalom for the world, for our neighbors, for ourselves. And so God, thank you for the good news of the beautiful gospel that our indebtedness to to you has been forgiven and that the power that would want to animate and keep us caught in this cycle of sin and evil and injustice in our own lives, that power has been broken. Lord, it doesn't always feel like that. So I pray, God, today that you would work in our lives and in our hearts in such a way that we would begin to experience that as true, to know that as true, and to begin to live in victory. And God, for each of us, we recognize that will mean different things. But Lord, would you personalize this message in ways that I cannot? Would you translate my words into precisely what each one needs to hear today? We give you thanks and we give you praise. Be with us now as we gather around your table. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, I wanna lead us in a liturgy of communion today and, um, and then we'll serve you right down here in the middle aisle, be Amy and I serving you. And um, we'll present the elements to you by saying this is the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. Uh, Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, consume the two together, and then if you'd like, you can respond with the traditional response of thanks be to God. After which, you can find your way back to your seats or along, if you'd like to pray, we have altars along the side of our sanctuary where you are welcome to pray. If for whatever reason you're not able to join us at the table, then um, we have a communion usher who will come to you right where you're seated. Just raise your hand during our time. And then, um, without prompting, um, the ushers will come by. We'll receive God's tithe and our offering. And uh, we just encourage you to give generously and obediently to the work that God is doing through this local church. Let me lead us to the Lord's table today. What are we to make of this day and this season when graves are opened, the dead are awakened, and when life refuses to be contained? We are to realize that nothing is impossible, that hope is never extinguished, and love is never conquered. 
So we celebrate you today, Jesus, because you have made it clear that death does not have the last word. You have filled us again with hope and faith. You have given us new vision of possibilities and new realities and new ways of being. May we learn to embrace the mystery of that which we cannot fully explain and may our hearts hope for that which we cannot yet fully see. May we learn to live and to love while death and despair are all around us. Resurrection happened because Christ was first prepared to die and then defying death, he refused to release his hold on life and love. And now we choose to gather around this table to remember that we too can truly live through Christ, who on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So now, Lord of life, we share in this meal, we celebrate together, and we remember you. And we will continue to do this until resurrection has flooded the whole creation. Amen.